my god, what truly weird and trying times we find ourselves in. Well, hello there, ladies and gents. War Daddy here. Yes, I've missed you too. First off, I am terribly sorry for the long hiatus. I know promises have been made for an epic conclusion to this blood-soaked Bushido Kamikaze Yamato Pacific Theater-focused odyssey that we've all been on, and those promises still stand. But at the moment, a few irons I've had in the fire have kept me distracted, some of which are even aimed at launching this little project to a whole new level, and thus, I didn't want to attack these next chapters without knowing what kind of firepower I'd have at my disposal. Though these irons may be glowing at least a little bit, we'll just have to see how things play out. That said, no matter what happens on that end, I swear that you and I will be landing on mainland Japan with Operation Downfall. We will absolutely be diving into some truly fascinating alternate history, and we most definitely will be exploring World War II's epic conclusion without the bombs, in the most vivid, gruesome, and sonically entertaining form, just not quite yet. And anyway, there's just too much wild shit going on right now. I mean, I always wanted to live through a historical moment, but uh, this is not exactly what I had in mind. Global pandemic aside, there's just so much happening everywhere I look that this is the first time in my life that I've found it genuinely hard to pull my attention from the current moment and point it at the past. But that's the funny thing about the past. Sometimes, when you're not looking, it has a way of grabbing you by the collar and tossing you down a flight of stairs. Now, y'all know I'm a history guy, air quotes there. My friends, family, and random folks who've fallen under unsolicited whiskey-fueled ear bashings at random beer halls have also found that out the hard way, because apparently, I really just don't seem to shut the fuck up about it. And because of this, over these last few months, I found myself fielding conversations and arguments with everybody I know about one specific and seemingly inescapable topic. The question constantly posed is, where do you stand on this whole tearing down monuments thing? Now, in the past, I've been admittedly content to simply unload a deluge of abuse on those wanting to celebrate Confederate generals and spout off whatever I thought I knew about Thomas Jefferson's slaves. But this little conflict has evidently gestated into something much more sensual to the zeitgeist moment we find ourselves in. Rather than quickly fading into the morass of all the other flashpoint arguments that crash down upon us every damn day, this particular question seems to get louder and more urgent every time it's asked. That's when I realized that this was the past, grabbing us by the collar and screaming in our collective faces, no, yank and forget me so easy, cause like it or not, I made you what you are today. This monument question isn't just about twisted history or some assault on American ideals, it's about who we are today and who we want to become. So as I typically do when I find a question that needs answering, I started digging. And tell you what, I found quite a lot of things that I never knew. Things that, if not outright changed, at least enlightened my perspective on this topic. Now, y'all know I'm an American, born and bred, and I really truly do love my country. I also spent most of June and July out on the streets of my city of Brooklyn, mask on, fist up, answering what I felt was the call of my countrymen, adding my voice to the great chorus, screaming out against injustice. Now I'm just telling you this because 
This episode is going to be a complete diversion from all the War Daddy episodes that came before it. I'm not going to say it's political, I really don't think it is, but it is my attempt to make sense of a highly political moment. And shit, it's 2020. Covering your face so you don't spread a lethal virus is somehow politicized, so bear with me here. Also, I know I've got a fairly healthy amount of non-US listeners out there. What's up, Finland? Hello to my lovely Brits. While this is going to be a very American-centric conversation, I do believe the concepts we're about to explore defy borders. And in the end, it's all about looking within anyway. What you're about to hear began as a kind of op-ed written by yours truly, chock full of images and hyperlinks so you can do your own deep dive into this topic. The article is available right now for your visual pleasure on Medium, and you'll find it linked to War Daddy via social media. This audio version aims to take that piece a few steps further, imbue it with a different sort of life, as well as add new interviews and conversations with educators and active military servicemen that have been recorded since the article's publishing. So now that I'm through this rather lengthy preamble, without further ado, I give you Monuments and the American Soul, written by William Kresh. All right, let's dial in that imagination. Picture yourself strolling through Berlin, heading south down the bustling Cosmopolitan Avenue called Friedrichstrasse. Once you hit the tourist-packed checkpoint Charlie, you bang a right, treading down the spine of what was once a physical part of the Iron Curtain, cutting off the east from the west, called the Wall. Leaving the crowds behind and heading into a more residential neighborhood, you eventually land upon a large, imposing structure that looks like a cross between a war monument and a cathedral. Walking up the steps, passing beneath looming marble pillars, you are finally met with a pair of gigantic, gilded swastikas embossed on imposing 14-foot-high doors. Crossing the threshold, you pierce into a fog of solemnity. At the end of the long footpath ahead stands a stately monument flanked by uniformed guards. As you head down the path, you pass an old couple standing in quiet reflection, then a small pavilion where young women garbed in traditional German drindles sell postcards. Finally, at the steps of this huge marble monument, you wait your turn to stand at the altar where an older man in a tweed blazer now kneels in prayer. A giant red banner flutters overhead, bearing the words, For those who have fallen in the name of the Fatherland, printed in that unmistakable Gothic German font. The old man ahead of you finishes his prayer and is helped to his feet. There are tears in his eyes. Now it's just you 
gazing into this regal shrine, gripped by the eerie quiet. You approach, your eyes devouring the intricate imagery carved into white marble, seeing Teutonic knights, Germanic runes, and a screaming eagle clutching a golden swastika. Conscious of a small queue forming behind, a nervous feeling climbs over you. You do not belong here. You bow your head in respect as you've seen the others do, and vacate. After a few steps, you look back in disbelief and instinctively go to snap a photo. But as you do, a uniformed guard is already beelining for you, commanding in a firm voice, Bitte, kind photos. You comply. This is the great shrine to all those who have fallen in the name of the German Reich. exist. But can you imagine it? In 2020, in the heart of Berlin, a solemn, beautiful shrine dedicated to all those who gave their lives for Germany, complete with swastikas and SS runes. How about if names like Heydrich and Himmler along with countless other convicted war criminals, were chiseled into those marble pillars. I think fucking not. Instead, after strolling down Frederiksrasse, through the tourists at Checkpoint Charlie and down that quiet street, you'll find yourself at a strikingly modern building called the Topography of Terror purposefully built atop what was once Nazi Gestapo headquarters, now stands a museum designed to catalog the rise of that evil regime and the unimaginable horrors that followed. It too is a sacred place, one dedicated to shining an unflinching spotlight on the evils of Germany's darkest era. By any standard, Germany as a nation does a pretty admirable job at facing the monsters of their past. This is no easy task. Although the aforementioned fictional Nazi war cathedral does not exist, I know of a place so strikingly similar in its function, history, and purpose that its existence defies belief. However, it most certainly does exist. So let's shift over to the place that inspired this little piece here. The Askuni Shrine in Tokyo, Japan.
The Imperial Palace is nestled at the very heart of the gigantic, sprawling metropolis of Tokyo. With the legendary residence of the Emperor as your starting point, swap Friedrichstrasse for a cherry tree lined stroll past the National Museum of Modern Art, the Science Museum, and the Nippon Budokan concert venue. And in about 15 photogenic minutes, you'll be standing at the gates of the Imperial Shrine of Yaskuni. As soon as you see the giant Diani gate leading to the entrance, it's like the barometer pressure changes. Perhaps it's because I know all too well what this shrine is dedicated to, but I can't help but feel that even without foreknowledge of its purpose, this place has an unmistakable aura. Maybe it's because I've spent the better part of the last three years studying and researching the Japanese culture that led to their horrific role in the Second World War. Maybe it's because I know that, symbolically interned in this shrine, are the souls of exactly 1,068 convicted war criminals. Maybe that's why I can't help but hear the high-pitched whistle of foreboding as I approach. Anyone else might just feel serenity in this quiet space carved off from the bustling city. It is no doubt a great spot to snap a cherry blossom selfie. Before entering, you wash your hands and rinse your mouth at the ceremonial fountain as you would before entering any Shinto shrine. Now cleansed, you bow respectfully in the shadow of the 50-foot-high Tori Gate and enter this sacred space. The path leads to a pair of massive, imposing wooden doors, upon which are emblazoned a pair of gleaming 16-petal chrysanthemums, the Imperial Seal of Japan. Though the symbology isn't far off, a comparison to the Nazi swastika-clad doors mentioned earlier is definitely not apples to apples. By no means a recent addition, this version of the Imperial Seal was adopted way back in 1183. Hell, it even finds its way onto the cover of the modern Japanese passport today. This is probably a topic for its own little think piece, but upon whose order was Japanese military aggression in World War II executed and sanctified? The Emperor. It is his seal that is staring you in the face as you enter. Through those doors, you pass a traditional-style kiosk where Japanese women in kimonos sell prayer cards and amulets, again, just like any Shinto shrine. Respectfully dressed men and women stroll the immaculate grounds in quiet reflection, down the long footpath, flanked by guards, looms the shrine itself. As I approach, my pulse quickens and I'm not sure why. At the altar, a besuited businessman completes his ritual of respect with a clap and a solemn bow. I am next in line, behind an elderly man in a gray tweed blazer 
who is helped up the steps by his wife. I watch him clap and bow, his eyes clamped shut, his lips moving in a silent sutra. As is my habit while in foreign countries, I find myself trying to guess his age, about 85, maybe 90, making him of ripe soldiering age in 1941. Seemingly lost in prayer, the old man loses his balance and his wife catches him by the arm. I run up to assist, asking if he's okay. When he nods, our eyes lock for a moment. He is weeping. As the old couple walks away, I now find myself standing beneath the great shrine. Incense smolders within. Intricately sculpted Buddhas wrought in gold gleam in candlelight. Banners bearing the imperial chrysanthemum flutter in the wind overhead, and I am overcome with an eerie feeling. As I peer into the darkness, I can only wonder what the 2,466,532 symbolically interred souls of the men and women who gave their lives for the Emperor might think of me. I suddenly feel like a tourist. Behind me, others now wait to approach the altar. It occurs to me that I don't have a prayer prepared. In fact, I don't actually know any prayers, let alone in Japanese. So I retreat. But soon find myself looking back over my shoulder, reaching instinctively for my phone to snap a photo. As I do, a voice calls out, Shashin Ganai, and I see a guard beelining towards me. He stares me down until I slip my phone back in my pocket. This is the Great Yaskuni Shrine. It most certainly does exist. Those numbers I mentioned are on point. 2,466,532 symbolically interred souls, stretching all the way back to the Meiji period's Boshin War, a bloody civil war where those loyal to the emperor wrested control from the Tokugawa shogunate. Yasukuni was built to forever enshrine the heroic fallen, those who had made the ultimate sacrifice to the emperor. In subsequent efforts to centralize state control, the imperial military government of the 1930s would make Yasukuni the most important and holy shrine in all of Japan, reaching new heights during the Second World War. As the blood-red tide of the Pacific War turned against Japan, Yasukuni was beginning to get crowded, making its role even more important for soldiers as well as civilian morale. To die in devotion to the emperor was to become a national hero. To be enshrined at Yaskuni was to become a demigod. It was only by joining these reverend ghosts that the almighty emperor would bow to you. 
In the horrific twilight of that war, as Japan's situation became more and more desperate, a common refrain between kamikaze pilots before embarking on their suicide missions became, We shall meet again in Yaskuni. And that's what brought me here in the first place. For those of you who've spent some time with me on the War Daddy podcast, it's not hard to understand why Yasukuni was a place I absolutely had to see with my own eyes. Now that I was finally here, I realized that no amount of reading could have possibly prepared me for what I was feeling in that moment. What did I, some white dude from the US with a thing for grand gestures, really think I was doing here? And that's about when I spotted the Kamikaze Monument. Tucked away in a hidden corner stands a weathered statue of a lone pilot, his bronze eyes fixed to the horizon. As I stood beneath the statue, studying the pilot's youthful face, I couldn't help but wonder, what could have become of me had I been born in, say, Kagawa Prefecture in 1925? Amid a sprinkling of flower petals, around the statue were a few scattered offerings. Opened bottles of sake, a handful of plums, an open 7-Eleven bought package of rice. Although this little statue is not featured front and center, it is clearly not forgotten. Just steps away from the Kamikaze Memorial, sharing property with the shrine itself, is the Yushukan War Museum. Now, I've been to plenty of war museums across the world, but this one is by far the most astounding I've ever encountered. The version of history that exists inside is so audaciously reimagined and perversely sanitized, the result is less a museum and more a shrine to Japanese war glory and heroic sacrifice. It's a place that feels like it was built by the victors, not by those whose nation was reduced to ashes before unconditional surrender, but I didn't know that yet. Upon entering, you are met with the Kamikaze's weapon of choice, a magnificently restored A6M0. With nerdy excitement, I dove into the Yushukan's dense and truly fascinating collection, beginning with priceless artifacts from the very beginning of Japan's military history. As I watched samurai swords abruptly change to muskets, I couldn't wait to see how they would handle the more difficult turning points of their history. And I was not disappointed by the irony. As I cruised into the early stages of Japan's pre-war expansion, the version of history that was unfolding was already starting to warp. I began to watch facts twist before my eyes. Key moments and details were strikingly omitted from Japan's ruthlessly waged war of imperialism in China. For a moment, I felt crazy. This was a topic I had studied for years, and somehow, this brutal war was being framed as a necessary battle for Japan's own survival. That's when I realized I wasn't going to find any references to comfort women or the rape of the Nanking in here. When I hit World War II in earnest, it was like stepping through a portal to an alternate dimension. Now admittedly, 
there are a myriad of perspectives, facts, competing narratives, and conspiracy theories when it comes to placing blame for Japan's role in World War II. But let's not be coy. No matter what corner they were painted into, and regardless of what combination of people were holding the brushes, Japan did jump on board via treaty with Hitler and the Axis powers. Japan absolutely did kick off the Pacific War with a massive, multi-front, coordinated attack on the Western powers before actually declaring war. To my utter dismay, this is not the story that unfolds within the walls of the Yushukan. Seemingly rewritten through the lens of the ultra-right wing, this revisionist history is both shocking in its omissions and audacious in its outright reimagining of historical moments. In this version, every action that pushed Japan closer and closer to this heinous, self-destructive war is qualified with claims of self-preservation. They even employ propaganda hits of the era, at one point literally writing in both Japanese and English that, quote, Japan's war was first a grand quest to liberate all Asia from the imperialist nations of Britain and America. Theirs is a narrative that hinges on bunk history, claiming that it was America's hull note that forced the whole of the world into war. The museum culminates with a truly impactful tribute to the kamikaze pilots displaying literally hundreds of pieces of their personal effects and letters home. The exhibit was moving and truly fascinating, and it was in fact the reason I had come all the way to Japan. But the way it was handled enshrouded the insane deeds of the kamikaze in a tone of tragic heroism rather than sober reality. Sure, as I said, there are many, many things to consider in understanding the countless factors, events, and interpretations that define Japan's role in World War II. But also, fuck that. Evil was done. Lots and lots of evil. And this museum mentions none of it. Rather than understanding, diagnosing, and atoning for that evil, this museum seems built to cleanse Japan's role in the most destructive war in human history. Theirs is a narrative that subverts the truth, allowing a perverted version of their national identity to take root, and Yushukan is a shrine to this false memory. This is a place that gives the American embrace of the Confederate myth of the lost cause a serious run for its money. Don't worry, I promise we'll get there. The best word I can come up to describe this place is spooky. I mean shit, these are the bad guys. All in one place, immortalized, bowed to and honored at the highest level. And sitting next to this infamous shrine is a museum built to rationalize all the worst of their cause. And although Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe hasn't been there in person since 2013 as a result of subsequent backlash, he still sends official offerings during the spring and autumn festivals. This place is very much still an integral part of Japanese national and political life. 
and that other number I mentioned holds true. 1,068 convicted war criminals, including 14 dubbed Class A. Now, these are fellows who are guilty of planning, initiating, and waging the Second World War. And it's in this holy place that the ghostly souls of every kamikaze is symbolically interred. Now, looking back on the admittedly incendiary scene that kicked off this piece, how really different is that imagined Nazi monument to this very real shrine? As an American whose grandparents fought for the United States in the Second World War, it's all too natural that I find myself in the seat of judgment. It's easy for me to call the revisionist history found in the Yushukan Museum warped, and to stand aghast at men bowing to the symbolically enshrined souls of men responsible for civilian mass killings, torture of POWs, and so much more horror. From my righteous high horse, it's also easy for me to fault the current Japanese government for lending credence to this narrative. Yet, the old maxim, history is written by the victors, does in fact ring true. Perhaps shockingly, this version of reality only exists due to the fact that the Americans, the victors, were the ones who wrote it. Of a new emancipated world. Today, freedom is on the offensive. Democracy is on the march. Today, in Asia as well as in Europe, unshackled peoples are tasting the full sweetness of liberty. The relief from fear. After Hiroshima and Nagasaki were vaporized and Japan officially surrendered, the battle for lasting peace was just beginning. In post-war Europe, justice and punishment was being brutally executed at a savage pace. The task made even simpler being that Hitler chose to paint the bunker wall with his godforsaken brains. He would never have to stand trial for his crimes. But in Tokyo, the emperor was not only alive, but was still worshipped by his people on a godly level, making questions of justice and reconciliation much more complicated. Furthermore, there were no American flags fluttering above the charred husk of the imperial palace as they were above the ruined Reichstag. 
Though Japan was beaten to a bloody pulp, there were no GI boots crunching down the streets of Tokyo. At the time of their surrender, there was not a single allied soldier on mainland Japan. They were simply beaten differently than the Nazis were. In fact, in the days before their surrender, the whole of the nation and its military, what was left of it, had been preparing to fight to an apocalyptic end. Yes, they would have ultimately lost, but the hellish slaughter of both the Japanese and American lives was only avoided for one simple reason. The Emperor had declared it so. And to be sure, there is absolutely zero doubt that the Japanese would have kept fighting had the Emperor asked them to do so. In fact, there was even a coup attempt by high-ranking military staff when the decision to surrender was learned of. They simply refused to believe that the Emperor would make such an order. This incident was in fact one of the few examples of the military going against Imperial decree, leading to the ritual suicide of those involved upon their failure. Surrender was truly unthinkable to this breed of warrior. And to make matters worse, it would not only have been the warriors, but the civilians who would have been committed mind, body, and soul to this unthinkable endgame, no matter how futile victory would have been. Had the Emperor not chosen the path of peace, untold horrors would have taken place. Such was his power. But with that logic, how could the Emperor not be held responsible for the horrors that did occur under his rule? The occupation of that destroyed island fell to Douglas MacArthur, and so too the decision how or whether to punish the Emperor for the crimes of his nation. Although this concept of Emperor worship was truly confounding to Western Christians, MacArthur had no illusions as to the power that the Emperor commanded, and thus his role in creating a permanent peace. It was this love and devotion to the Emperor that inspired the insane bonsai charges, the suicidal kamikaze pilots, and refusals to surrender that in some cases would last into the 1970s. MacArthur was made to understand not only how thin the ice he was walking on was, but also how useful a tool the Emperor could be. Internal U.S. memos describe the opportunity this way. Quote, The mystic hold the emperor has on his people and the spiritual strength of the Shinto faith, if properly directed, need not be dangerous. The emperor can be made a force for good and peace, provided Japan is totally defeated and the military clique destroyed. For MacArthur, this was a fine and strange line to walk. His first task would be to essentially make the Emperor human in the eyes of his people, which is a crazy notion given that we're talking about 1945 here. The Emperor was worshipped as a literal descendant of the gods. To negate this, a Declaration of Humanity was written for the Emperor and presented to the public with far-reaching ramifications. However unthinkable a reversal this was to the Japanese monarch system, the Emperor was made to understand that he would have to embrace the image of a peace-loving, European-style figurehead who had been betrayed by the ruthless military men around him if he wanted to remain on the throne 
and to stay alive. However, this knife MacArthur was using cuts both ways. Internal US memos describe the high stakes game being played with a potentially volatile public. MacArthur's influential advisor, Brigadier General Bonner Fellers, put it this way, quote, to try him as a war criminal would not only be blasphemous, but a denial of spiritual freedom. There must be no weakness in peace terms. However, to dethrone or hang the emperor would cause tremendous and violent reaction from all Japanese. Hanging the emperor would be comparable to the crucifixion of Christ to us. All would fight and die like ants. While countless influential figures in Washington, the UK, China, Australia, Korea, and Russia pressed for swift and immediate action against the emperor, MacArthur was convinced in his strategy of soft policy, believing it the only way to avoid further bloody upheaval and create a lasting peace. Looking back now, it's hard not to agree with him, mainly because it worked. Lasting peace and stability was achieved, leading to photos like that of United States President Ronald Reagan proudly standing beside Emperor Hirohito in 1983. The Emperor was never held accountable for the horrors that took place under his rule. Albeit the successful choice, the version of reality created by the US in its wake is hardly the most true. While the Emperor's actual nature and responsibility in the tragedies of World War II is certainly a longer discussion, there is no denying that the version that exists in Japan is one handed down by the United States and its allies. A deluded, less punitive understanding of Japan and the Emperor's role was allowed to prevail because it was the smoothest path to peace. And it was also handy to have a true ally in the East as the US began its confrontation with communism. With this version being the accepted canon, what those who lived through it were meant to understand, and what subsequent generations are currently taught, it is no wonder that a shrine harboring the interred souls of confirmed war criminals exists to this day. When the foundation of one's history is warped and incomplete, how could one hope to face it honestly? To see an alternate path, look to Germany, a place where their horrid history is not swept into dark corners, avoided at all costs, or omitted from museums. In fact, as a German, it's pretty impossible not to be confronted with the sins of their fathers on a nearly daily basis. Due to the necessary thoroughness of post-war justice, not to mention the scope of their crimes, Germans are routinely forced to hold an unflinching gaze with their brutal past. The country's capital city of Berlin is in fact rife with monuments and memorials to the darkest chapter of the country's history. From sprawling parks like the monument to the murdered Jews of Europe, sitting just steps from the iconic Brandenburg Gate, to multiple museums such as the Topography of Terror, 
which exhibits the rise and horrors of Nazism in visceral and extreme detail, down to individual bricks in the street inscribed with the names of Berliners abducted by the Gestapo. This concept of constant memorialization not only illustrates the past in stark detail, but also permeates their future. For example, visiting a former concentration camp is mandatory for every future police officer in Berlin. A central focus of the lengthy two and a half year long Berlin police training program teaches cadets in unsparing detail about the dark legacy of policing under the Nazis and how it informs their role and the institution of policing today. However difficult the German approach may be, it's harder to say that Germany and future Germans are not better for it. This strategy of unavoidable education provides a clear example of how facing the past can be employed to build a better future. Knowledge leads to empathy. Empathy engenders at least a chance at atonement and thus progress, which, in my humble opinion, is perhaps the most important and powerful function of historical study. And again, I'm not saying that the German approach is in any way easy. Facing the shadows of the past is painful for all parties, from the leadership who must take ownership of the crimes that they may not have been alive to commit, to the average citizens who must confront these memorials on a daily basis. Building lasting memories to tragedy is by no means a given, almost always leading to painful controversy, even when the culture and leadership is fully on board with its creation. But what if the leadership outright refuses to recognize the tragedy at all? Take for example, the fraught case of South Korea's Peace Girl statues. The small bronze figure of a young girl sits, staring straight ahead, her intense gaze fixed on the Japanese embassy in Seoul, South Korea. Wearing traditional Korean dress, she's barefoot, her fists clenched with determination, and Japan wants her gone. This little statue is dedicated to what are known as comfort women. The United Nations estimates at least 200,000 girls and women were seized from villages conquered by Japanese forces and forced into Japan's military sexual slavery program before and during the Second World War. In recent years, the voices of survivors have grown in volume as they call for recognition of this tragedy. 92-year-old survivor An Jeom Sun recounts, quote, what can I say? They did all the stuff that they wanted to do according to their desires. This was all forced. What could we possibly do? Jeom's son describes how she and other South Korean women were captured by Japanese forces and made to serve at temporary brothels near the front lines, often tents or wooden shacks surrounded by barbed wire, and were forced to have sex with as many as 70 Japanese soldiers and officers per day. While statues dedicated to the comfort women can be found in over 50 different parks and public spaces across South Korea, Japan is fighting to see these statues removed. 
some within Japan's ruling party outright deny that the war-era imperial government was involved in the sex slave program at all, instead absurdly contending that the women were, quote, volunteers. This lack of consensus and refusal to accept historical fact speaks to Japan's ill-informed memory of their own evil role in the Second World War. As far as Japan is concerned, there's nothing to take ownership of because nothing ever happened. Stemming from the highest levels of Japan, this attitude has far-reaching consequences, trickling down to ordinary citizens and expats alike. Continuing to be an open sore, the memorials have been subject to vandalism and desecration as far away from Japan as Glendale, California, where one such statue was smeared with human feces. In 2015, the governments of Japan and South Korea struck a controversial deal requiring Japan to compensate victims and, quote, issue a statement of regret, as long as South Korea swore to remove these ghostly bronze reminders of their ugly past. However, this deal was never accepted by activists, survivors, or Korean citizens. Somewhat predictably, in spite of this agreement, statues continued to proliferate, angering the Japanese government so much that it temporarily recalled its ambassador from Seoul in 2017. The battle to recognize this history has now gone guerrilla. This past International Memorial Day for Comfort Women, Seoul residents found statues riding city buses. The shocking tactic had the desired effect. By having these statues, we'll have high school students and younger generations be curious about what they mean. They will ask their parents and older generations and their teachers to give them a proper explanation and thus learn the truth, says An Jeom Sun. Despite the original statue's gaze still unflinchingly fixed upon the Japanese embassy in Seoul, you will not find any memorials to comfort women in Japan. At the time of that doomed agreement with Japan, about 46 former sex slaves were still alive. Today, as the once politically untouchable movement struggles for traction, there are less than 17 known living survivors. Memorials like these are not only built to recognize a wrong, but to stand up against the unstoppable march of time. As educational tools, they exist not only to commemorate, but to inform future generations long after those involved are gone from the earth. In this case, they are stalwart defenders of a truth denied. Part of me wants to make the argument that in cases like the fall of Japan, the hard truths had to be omitted in pursuit of a bloodless transition to peace. I then want to say that even if the generation that lived through and participated in those events might never be equipped to fully face their ugly past, their children and their children's children would be. One would hope that simply by the nature of their existence, free from the malice of the moment, along with the benefit of study and hindsight, subsequent generations could seek an honest understanding of this past. To see how flawed that notion is, look no further than the good old USA.
So as I sit here and extol Germany as a great example and decry Japan as an awful one, I do so from my aforementioned righteous American high horse. Yet as I speak, there are protests literally outside of my Brooklyn apartment window. At this very moment, a bitter battle is being waged for the truth of our past. As I watch the streets choked with endless crowds marching towards Grand Army Plaza, I can't help but think that there is no place in more need of a historical reckoning than my own home. Time only heals wounds if you're able to reckon with what caused them. If you can't, the wounds tend to fester. For instance, the United States Civil War ended over 152 years ago, but the pus-leaking traumas of that bitter conflict are still spilling into the streets today. However, the cause of this ongoing strife is not an indecisive victor or a contested peace treaty but a fundamental lack of understanding as to why it was fought in the first place. In this way, America suffers from the same issues in dealing with its past as the Japanese do. We're also talking about a gulf of time twice as long as the one between the current Japanese generation and the Second World War. Sure, time has the ability to heal especially if that time is measured in generations. But it's just as likely to hurt and stymie the ability to move forward if the truth of the long view is warped from the get. It's utterly infuriating to crack a current US history book, flip to the Civil War chapter, and find listed as its central cause, states' rights. If that's your starting point to understanding which side was just or the necessity of the war, then your view is going to be tragically poisoned. Y'all just let me know when this begins to remind you of the US's role in codifying the Emperor's role in World War II. Now, I'm really not trying to fully litigate this topic, mainly because if you're espousing that the war was fought to protect states' rights, you probably aren't listening to my voice right now. However, even if I am speaking to a like-minded choir, it would be a disservice if I didn't nail down at least just a few quick points. Though the cause of the American Civil War might be one of the most fraught topics in American history, even just a real quick scan of the secessionist state's own declarations of causes, and you'll get the picture pretty quick. Take this example from Texas's, for example. Quote, we hold as undeniable truths that the governments of the various states and the Confederacy itself were established exclusively by the white race for themselves and their posterity, that the African race had no agency in their establishment, that they were rightfully held and regarded as an inferior and dependent race, and in that condition only could their existence in this country be rendered beneficial or tolerable. That comes from the Texas Declaration of Causes for Secession, written in 1861. Yep, 
it's all right there in black and white. And if you're thinking, ah, well, that's just Texas, I ask you to simply do some more reading. Each of the secessionist states had one of these declarations, and each one explicitly made the defense of slavery a clear objective. The most consistent things in each, other than the outright defense of slavery, are attacks on abolitionism, pointing to slavery as being a huge portion of the southern economy, with some even arguing that slavery must be expanded. Even when states' rights is mentioned, it's in conjunction with anger over the enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act, claiming that the North's refusal to return fugitive slaves is an infringement of said rights. At the time, in the antebellum South, even if you were not a slaveholder, owning humans was a symbol of wealth and prosperity, truly something to aspire to. Though it's true that the vast majority of Confederate soldiers were not owners of huge plantations and hundreds of slaves themselves, an average of 32% of white families in secession states did own human beings. 32%. And that number jumps to 46 when you get to South Carolina and 49 when you hit Mississippi. Just think of that for a moment. Around half of white people living in Mississippi owned at least one human being. Even if it's just one human being, I'd say that's a pretty significant percentage, let alone those who owned hundreds of human beings. With the idea of white supremacy serving as the rationale for slavery, the idea of white Southerners living side by side with newly free and an ever-growing black population was a straight-up terrifying notion. Slave owner or not, this was the only life they knew, one whose foundation was built on slavery. It was this abhorrent status quo that the secession states deemed worthy of spilling so much blood for. And sure, yes, there were additional reasons, but upon even the most sparing examination, the state's rights argument is a farce. Finish the damn sentence. The state's rights to own slaves. One more piece I feel bears inclusion is what's known as the Cornerstone Speech, delivered by a Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens. In his clarification of the newly minted Confederate Constitution, Stevens specifically states that the Confederacy rejects the concept that all men are created equal, as enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. Let me give you a little taste, and I'll fill in some blanks here for you so we're all on the same page. <clears throat> Quote, the new Constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institutions. African slavery, as it exists among us, is the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. He's talking about the secession movement. The general opinion of the men of that day, he means the revolutionary period, was that, somehow or other, in the order of providence, the institution, slavery, would be evanescent and pass away. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideals. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests, upon the great truth 
that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. Alexander Hamilton Stevens, 1861. God, I feel sick just saying that shit out loud. You know, it was one thing to write it down, but when I say it, like, I'm, I'm like repulsed and infuriated. And shit, it's hard to get much clearer than that. Delivered as a response to the 1861 election of President Abraham Lincoln, whose personal opposition to slavery was an outrage to the South, the speech proved to be a rallying cry for the new Confederacy as war broke out just 22 days later. This manifesto was explicitly meant to repudiate what Jefferson and the Founding Fathers had found our nation upon, the aspiration that America would one day be free of the scourge of slavery. In Stevens's own words, this new Confederacy was founded upon, quote, the exact opposite ideals, amounting to one sinister admission of treason. Now, do me a favor and rewind like 30 seconds, listen to that shit again, and ask yourself, how different are those words to Hitler's vision for his thousand-year Reich? And sure, you'll find bits here and there about how Confederate President Jefferson Davis was all pissed about this speech. But his anger stemmed from the fact that Stevens's bold language would make seducing foreign nations to the Confederate side, particularly ones who did not accept slavery, much more difficult. And to be sure, you're never going to see Jefferson Davis rail against the contents of that speech. Those launching this grand rebellion were all on the same page when it comes to slavery. And the notion of Davis being outraged actually lacks any historical evidence whatsoever. So if anyone happens to find any, the historical community is all ears. Remember I said that this is a fraught topic. Now, please don't confuse my arguments as saying that the North's sole goal in the Civil War was emancipation. That's a whole nother enchilada deserving its own conversation. We've all seen that out of context Lincoln letter saying, quote, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. But Northern reasons for fighting the war aside, the South's reasons written for posterity in their own words are hard to argue with. I'm not trying to make saints out of anybody here, but the sinners are pretty easy to spot. Let's also note that Alexander Hamilton Stevens, the author of those abhorrent words I just had to read to you, currently has an incredible statue of himself sitting in the National Statuary Hall collection in the United States Capitol building. Yes, there is a statue of that son of a bitch in the Capitol. And there is currently no plan whatsoever to address this marble-carved tumor which festers on Capitol Hill. So if we're taking the South at their word, why don't we call the Civil War the Slaveholders' Rebellion or the Freedom War? I'll tell you right now, you won't find either of those ever gaining popularity, but what you will find is the War of Northern Aggression and even the Second American Revolution. 
Both of those have had their moments in the limelight, and you might even hear them to this day. By the turn of the century, the Civil War had won the name game, for better or for worse. Yes, pretty much everything with the Civil War is controversial, including its name. Now, you might be asking, how can the name possibly matter? But adopting such a nondescript name was a very conscious decision, the goal of which was to create a sense of mutual innocence. This was reconstruction after all, time to bury the hatchet and heal a deeply marred nation and all that. It may seem a trite detail, but this seemingly simple choice proved to obscure the cause of the war, contributing to the nation's failure to understand its meaning and implications. It also reflects the failure to address the centrality of slavery, not only to the war, but to American history. Calling it the Civil War also made it easier for both sides to continue to believe their actions were noble, justified, and honorable. Neither side wrestled, as Lincoln's second inaugural address had urged Americans to do, with their own and the nation's failings. Reconciliation was a tricky, high-stakes pursuit, and one that would no doubt have been more difficult had the war been dubbed something like the War for Abolition, or perhaps more accurately, the Slaveholders' Rebellion, as Frederick Douglass and other great abolitionists had lobbied for. As in post-war Japan, the choice to take the path of least resistance facilitated a failure to create an honest memory. And you can see the symbol of that failure flapping in the wind to this day, in the form of the Confederate battle flag. Pushing ahead about 75 years to the 1950s, which is about the same time gap as we are now to the Second World War, and you'll see that the slavery, freedom-espousing names for the Civil War had long slipped to the wayside. With American racial tensions beginning to bubble, along with a fundamentally flawed memory of the Civil War's cause being allowed to flourish, this time period would give one particularly bullshit name for the Civil War its time in the spotlight. The War of Northern Aggression. Before the 1950s, referring to the War of Northern Aggression would likely elicit confused head scratches from anyone north or south of the Mason-Dixon. This historically revisionist and incendiary name was born out of pure racial resentment, and grew due to the influence of groups like the Daughters of the Confederacy and the Neo-Confederate Champions of the Cult of the Lost Cause. This was a fraught time in which the first flowers of the civil rights movement were beginning to bloom, and for the first time, the federal government saw fit to intervene into the simmering southern race relations, and white southerners absolutely hated it. That same nature that wanted to destroy good, that wanted to destroy purity, they're out to crucify our school system. As unrest, riots, and the civil rights movement began to gain steam, this war of northern aggression exploded into popularity as white racists and segregationists mobilized to fight all challenges to racial control. 
This was the lingo of their counter-movement, the flying of the Confederate battle flag, their symbol of resistance. By linking this new fight to what was regarded as the heroic war of their ancestors, they were able to enshroud evil intentions behind an identity of pride and nobility. This is the era from which today we get all our favorite racist dog whistles. Though in its heyday, there was no need to hide anything, making these first versions more like the scream of a racist jet engine. We have fought an honorable war. We were conquered because we didn't have the soldiers in the North had there. And yet, a hundred years later there, 1954 there, this Supreme Court of the United States declared that you had to accept niggers in your schools there. And you had to accept them here under the Civil Rights Bill there. This rejuvenation, or maybe even the continuation of the original ethos, reveals that white Southerners' embrace for the Confederate ideology owes as much to the battles fought over the 1960s civil rights movements as to the war waged in the 1860s. The other major tactic in this war for the American memory would be to enshrine this warped view in ever-enduring marble. After all, it was white racists who held the legal and political power to bring these symbols into physical existence. They sought to realize this heroic and noble narrative by making a part of the southern landscape for all time. One must admit, it's hard to see this cause as anything but just, accepted, and righteous when its heroes are cast in brass, looking ever downward from 50-foot-tall pedestals. However, the creation of Confederate monuments was not a new trick. The first spike in monuments came at the turn of the century as Jim Crow laws carved the South into black and whites only. Though there are additional reasons as to why ordinary Southerners would support these monuments, for instance, many fathers and husbands who had fought as Confederates were now dying out at the turn of the century, one concurrent theme persisted. A rising nostalgia for the Old South, spurred on by the mainstream proliferation of the Lost Cause ideology. Inscribed with Jefferson Davis's call to, quote, teach your children the values of the past, the monuments asked Southerners to hearken back to a former glory when white people enjoyed unchallenged dominion. They served to recast treasonous soldiers who had suffered humiliating defeat as tragic heroes worthy of sainthood. Rather than being interred in cemeteries as had previously been the case, the addition of these monuments to state land, parks, city centers, and outside of government buildings was meant to send a message of intimidation. To simply mail a letter or report for jury duty, Southern African Americans found themselves gazing up at deified versions of the men who fought and died to keep them and their ancestors in chains. With the Supreme Court enshrining the disenfranchisement of African Americans into law, these looming statues dedicated to noble Confederate heroes would serve as tent poles to hold up the new normal of a segregated South. 
Confederate monument construction again spiked as the civil rights movement pushed back against Southern segregation laws. These statues were meant to create legitimate garb for white supremacy, says James Grossman, executive director of the American Historical Association. Quote, why else would you put a statue of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson in 1948 Baltimore? Continuing the intimidation tactics of years prior, the sharp increase in statues and monuments was meant to say one thing. The South never did and never would accept black equality. The 1950s saw scores of new Confederate monuments added to the Southern landscape, many erected in direct response to federal desegregation efforts. In 1955, one year after the Supreme Court struck down segregated public schools in Brown versus Board of Education, Alabama opened up an all-white high school named for Robert E. Lee, placing a bronze figure of Lee at its entrance. Months later, as part of its opposition to Brown, Georgia redesigned the state flag to include the Confederate battle flag. As described by George McKay, member of the Georgia State Assembly that passed the flag change, stated, quote, there was only one reason for putting the flag on there. Like a gun rack in the back of a pickup truck, it telegraphs a message. Yeah, you heard that right. There was no Confederate battle symbol on the now infamous Georgia state flag until 1956. This wasn't some storied relic from the past. It was a deliberate resistance tactic born out of resentment to the federal mandate to desegregate schools. Though you might hear after the fact arguments that this change was made in preparation of the Civil War's centennial, that would be news to its original sponsors. No one in 1956, including the flag's underwriters, claimed that the change was in anticipation of the coming anniversary. Changes like these were never about honoring history, but born out of defiance, all part of the crusade to preserve white supremacy. The beauty point was how easy this political action slipped seamlessly into the existing social fabric of the South thanks to those early Jim Crow era efforts. As evidenced by the view at an Ole Miss football game, Confederate symbology was so thoroughly fetishized, normalized, and central to the Southern identity, it was truly inescapable, and in many ways it still is. any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. And I want every one of you, if you want your daughter, your son to marry, nigga, hold up your hand and let me look you in the eyes if you're a white man or a white woman. Yes, sir. How long?
As the civil rights movement really heated up in the 60s, Confederate symbols too spread like wildfire. In reaction to the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, Texas installed 27 monuments dedicated to Confederate soldiers who had, quote, nobly fought against the federal enemy. In 1964 alone, another 16 monuments sprung up across the South while Florida joined Georgia and South Carolina in flying the Confederate battle flag on its courthouse lawns. Thousands of segregation academies were founded, using private status to avoid federal school integration mandates. Set up in makeshift classrooms, installed in churches and supposedly teaching Christian values, it was no secret that these schools were designed to shield white children from developing any kind of empathy for their would-be black schoolmates. Named for Confederate heroes such as Stonewall Jackson and in total control of their own curriculum, what kind of history do you think was being taught in these segregated schools? In the words of James W. Lowen, the Confederates won with the pen and the noose what they could not win on the battlefield, the cause of white supremacy and the dominant understanding of what the war was all about. In his revelatory books, Lies My Teacher Told Me and Teaching What Really Happened, James W. Lowen dissects the myths and outright falsehoods that plague history textbooks not just in the South, but across the whole of the country. It's no wonder that the history taught regarding the Civil War and Reconstruction Era, written by men with a state-sanctioned revisionist agenda, proves to be a black hole of disingenuous intention. Yet, the propaganda that Southern segregationists and adherents to the lost cause were peddling was much more than just lionized myth and mistruth. It was a weaponized lie. A distorted history that sought to rationalize gleefully carried out lynchings and solidify white supremacy over African Americans for all time. They understood that education was the best way to keep the next generation chained to the warped views of a false past. Though the KKK was hidden behind the mask, these symbols became the ever-visible battle cry in the fight against the civil rights goals of integration and equality. The South became a landscape studded with the iconography of white supremacy and racial inequality, much of which was state-sponsored. And since these malevolent ghosts have yet to be properly exercised, they haunt us to this day.
You'd hope that those who revered General Robert E. Lee enough to immortalize him with a gargantuan statue in the heart of their capital city would also respect his wishes as to healing the past divide. However, that was clearly never their main objective. In speaking about a proposed monument at the Gettysburg battle site, one of the most pivotal and bloody of the war, the general said this, quote, I think it wiser not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the examples of those nations who endeavor to obliterate the marks of civil strife and commit to oblivion the feelings engendered. General Robert E. Lee, 1866. Now, that to me sounds like pretty solid advice, made especially ironic having been said by the man whose statue has so recently become public enemy number one. Controversial from its installation, the statue was erected in that first turn-of-the-century monument spike at the advent of the Jim Crow laws. The American Historical Association has since acknowledged its design and use as an intimidation tactic against African Americans created by those seeking to solidify and perpetuate the lost cause of the Confederacy narrative. Only now, 126 years after its installment, are we finally trying to deal with this particular monument in earnest. And this movement is only due to the massive protests following the May 2020 killing of George Floyd. In the face of mounting pressure, Governor Ralph Northam finally acquiesced to the statue's removal, but even so, a Richmond judge has since issued an injunction halting the removal, citing Virginia's promise to, quote, faithfully guard and affectionately protect the statue. So, as we speak, the statue of the traitor who led the Confederate army on its gory quest to continue the ownership of other human beings still rides proudly above the city today. You'd think that this would be an easy one to address, but no. With all we know about why it was put up, and its obvious role in causing such bitter civil strife, as Lee himself put it, it's hard to fathom why this statue is such a difficult thing to honestly address. But hey, it's not like the US has statues of KKK members enshrined on state property or anything. Oh shit, actually we do. In fact, Tennessee's got a gleaming bronze bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the very first Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard interred within their state capitol building. You know what makes that even more fucked up? It was only installed in 1979. Yes, that's 1979. While the aforementioned lost causers and Confederate apologists regard Forrest as an iconic Southern hero who once saved Rome, by that they mean Georgia, from barbaric Union raiders, his full biography is a bit more ugly. Sure. He was a damn fine horse warrior for the Confederate Army, slaughtering a ton of Union troops. He was also an infamous antebellum slaver who financed the troops under his command from his vast wealth made from selling humans. He's also the man ultimately responsible for the Fort Pillow Massacre, where black Union soldiers attempting to surrender were murdered by Forrest's troops. Yet it's Forrest's second act that really makes him a national icon. After the war, he would become a galvanizing force in the creation of the Ku Klux Klan. Hmm. 
As their very first national grand wizard, he was known as the Avenging Angel of the Lost Cause, a hooded, torch-bearing, hardcore racial terrorist who by 1868 grew the clan to nearly 550,000 members across the southern states. So, why in the howling fuck does there exist a lovely bust of this man resting in a seat of honor inside Tennessee's Capitol Rotunda? It's a really good question. And as a note for all you Tennesseans out there, your tax dollars are paying for the cleaning supplies that keep old Nathan's bronze head nice and shiny. State building funded by state taxes. Yes, that's coming out of your pocket, so if that doesn't sit right with you, it might just be time to speak up. It's not like the why of this statue is any mystery, but its authorization and continued existence defies all possible explanation. I don't mean to sound hysterical here, but if you're feeling like you're having a struggle listening to this, you're not alone. As you can imagine, from the day of its dedication, the statue has been a flashpoint for protest and controversy, even with members of Forrest's own lineage having begged to have the statue taken down, efforts to do so have yet to defeat resistance coming from within the state government. Tennessee state lawmakers did vote to remove the bust in January 2020, but when a House committee took up the resolution, it was voted down 11 to 5. A second House bill aimed at ending the legally required day of special observation for Forrest just barely cleaned its first hurdle this past month. Oh yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention that. Um, so you know, July 13th is Nathan Bedford Forrest Day. Yep, that's a real thing in 2020. So if you want to celebrate by, um, I don't know, <laughs> fucking burning a black Baptist church down or putting a hood on and injuring one of your African-American neighbors, um, you know, I feel like that's probably the best way to celebrate such a fucking bullshit holiday. In arguing about this bust with a learned friend of mine, they said something like, well, if you take it down, people will forget the evil he did. And... I can see how that might make sense on the surface, but to that I ask, do we need a golden bust of Adolf Hitler in the Reichstag to remember the Holocaust? I don't think so. Such are the side effects found in a nation that never truly came to terms with the core meaning of its most bloody war. Facilitated by a sanitized memory, we still find ourselves with two sides opposed rather than one union together. And for all the amateur history folks such as myself, if one takes time to look, it's not hard to see that the current disputes over Confederate symbols owe much more to modern divisions over the role and treatment of African Americans than they ever have to the memory of the Civil War. Today, the scars over these divisions have grown thick and ugly due to generational neglect. Those who have tried to bring these issues into the light and make real change have routinely been met with steadfast resistance and outright ignorance. It's not hard to see how getting to that deep-rooted poison within can seem well past surgery, instead requiring the blunt force of rage. This is not something I advocate. But it is increasingly clear that the anger awoken over these hateful relics is not going away. Peaceful 
Man, you know what they say about waking a sleeping giant. In John F. Kennedy's words, quote, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. I've always loved that Kennedy quote. Not that I'm calling this spate of anger and protest a true revolution, but such is a natural result when a frustrated populace is unable to make the changes they desire through the proper channels. This is not new anger, but it is getting louder. These statues have been recognized to be born out of malintent, protested against, condemned, and even voted on. Yet in so many cases, change has still been made impossible. There's been a fire burning under this kettle for a long time now, and it seems obvious to me that if that shrill whistle is ignored long enough, at some point, it's gonna boil over. Change takes blood. Every bit of positive change made in this country took a battle, it took a war, it took a movement. Nothing was ever given, not once. America did not break from King George via cordial conversation over tea and crumpets. The slaves were not freed with a stock buyout. Segregation would not have been defeated without mass rallies, civil disobedience, and martyrs to the cause. The Civil Rights Act itself was only passed after the eruption of nationwide riots in the wake of Martin Luther King's assassination. While I do not advocate the vigilante destruction of monuments, confederate or otherwise, by that same token, I ask, what kind of feelings would a Hermann Göring statue erected in Marienplatz engender in the Jewish residents of Munich? While I can empathize with these flashes of anger manifesting in the ugly scenes on American streets, I unequivocally regard them as neither the right nor the best way to make changes. I also recognize that this is a scary time. Challenging the status quo is never easy, especially when it calls into question one's long-held understanding of their nation's history. Progress is rarely ever perfect, made even more difficult when elements at the movement's edges spin out of control. The wrecking ball of public opinion is a brutal instrument. When coupled with blind rage, you can get a truly bad result. For instance, behold the assholes defacing the statue of prominent abolitionist Matthias Baldwin on the steps of Philadelphia's City Hall. I'll say it plainly, that sucks. There will always be risk when uneducated, angry people take it upon themselves to vandalize and destroy. Pick your example, there's plenty to find. However, it is absolutely vital to separate these bad instances from the core message of the movement. So feel free to castigate those mistakenly spray-painting an abolitionist's statue all you want. I'm with you. But once we're done with that, noting that the statue has since been fully restored and the incident roundly condemned, there still, and always will, remain the honest conversation endorsed by the vast majority. While instances like these degrade from the overall message, let's call them what they are, the worst expressions of organic demonstrations that lack both central leadership and true organization. It's definitely not an excuse to paint the whole of this sprawling movement as one born by savages. 
Furthermore, when people say things like, next they'll take down the Washington Memorial, at least look at who the they is. Is it a coalition of Democratic senators introducing a bill to do so? Or is it some fringe character with a Twitter account? Is anybody really asking for this at all? In so many cases, this sentiment is little more than hyperbolic invention designed to inject fear and outrage into the conversation. Beware the ever-present and anonymous villain known as they. Though public opinion can be a terrifyingly swift and decisive tool, it is in your best interest to at least ask, who is saying this? At best, it's reductive and disingenuous to define sprawling, multifaceted social change by its worst or most extreme elements. What myself and I think the vast majority of people are talking about is genuine, legal, methodically thought out, well-informed, voted upon change. And as the sparks that set off this movement die down, the desire for change is still not going away. Obfuscating, ignoring, and calling this desire for honest progress unpatriotic is thoroughly antithetical to the American concept. Solely focusing on the worst incidents, ones that those within the movement itself despise, is to turn your back on the actual issues that continue to injure our nation. Doing so would sound like this. Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Many of these people have no idea why they're doing this, but some know exactly what they are doing. They think the American people are weak and soft and submissive. But no, the American people are strong and proud, and they will not allow our country and all of its values, history, and culture to be taken from them. That quote is taken from our president's 4th of July speech held in front of Mount Rushmore this past July 2020. Now, please believe me when I say that I have no desire to make this about him as everything ends up being these days. In no way do I blame him for the generational strife that is rearing its ugly head today. That said, it is hard not to see his reaction to it as the very definition of divisive. This is what it looks like to ignore the truth of the argument and instead seek a straw man to attack. The fact that the words I'm speaking right now and the moral compass that I'm following from within would be considered by our president part of the merciless campaign to wipe out history is quite disheartening. Though I find these images of street justice unsettling and frightening, I'm capable of understanding that they are not the whole picture, as do a majority of Americans. In a brand new Quinnipiac University poll released just this week, 52% of Americans support, quote, removing Confederate statues from public spaces around the country. 
Yeah, that's only barely a majority, but the attempt to cast half the country as a leftist mob misses the truth of the national attitude. And that 52% is a 19-point swing since 2017. The country is moving towards healing and change. You can even see it at the highest levels of the US military. Just this week, Joint Chief of Staff General Mark Milley testified before the House Armed Services Committee in support of renaming army bases that had been named after those who fought against the Union. Milley stated that the military needs to, quote, take a hard look at the symbology of the Civil War, such as base names and the display of the Confederate battle flag. The American Civil War was an act of treason against the Union, against the Stars and Stripes, against the U.S. Constitution, and those officers turned their backs on their oath. Now, some have a different view of that. Some think it's heritage. Others think it's hate. Even just the ability to have this conversation at this high level within the military is a sign of growth. Yet our president has threatened to veto any defense policy legislation that removes the names of Confederate bases, tweeting that, quote, my administration will not even consider the renaming of these magnificent and fabled military installations. Yet in spite of the president's reticence to even discuss this topic, members of both parties in both houses of Congress have backed legislation to rename the bases. And just so we're clear on these military base namesakes that are on the chopping block, we're talking about Henry Louis Benning, a hardcore and influential secessionist who would rather suffer, quote, pestilence and famine than see slavery abolished. Robert E. Lee, whose army kidnapped free African Americans and sold them into slavery. Alleged war criminal George Pickett, who fled to Canada to escape prosecution for the wrongful hanging of Union prisoners, and the incredibly durable Confederate John Brown Gordon. And with Gordon, I'll admit, this one gave me pause because I know his legend well. While leading his men at the Battle of Antietam, Gordon was shot more than four times, yet still refused to leave the front lines, only stopped by a fifth shot which hit him in the face. Gordon then legendarily fell face first into his hat and would have drowned in his own blood as the cap filled, had it not been pierced with yet another bullet, allowing it to drain. Brave? Hell yes. But he's also widely regarded as the first grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Though there is some debate about this, mainly due to the extreme secrecy of the organization and a lack of records and anything like that, later as a Georgia senator, Gordon was unquestionably, quote, the symbol of the age of white supremacy to all his Georgian constituents. So in light of that, I would argue that Fort Gordon, at the very least, is a topic worth discussing. So many of these installations were named in the shadow of Jim Crow and reflect the sanitized Civil War history invented during the Lost Cause era. And regardless of how brave these men were in battle, the fact remains that they were fighting to keep black people in shackles. Furthermore, this seems an especially futile hill to die on when there are so many service men and women for whom these forts and bases could be renamed for. Ours is not a military lacking in heroes. 
fight as the president may, I dare say that the genie is out of the bottle. You'd think that getting rid of statues to traitors, slavers, and KKK leaders, as well as relegating symbols of hate and white supremacy to the museum, would be a pretty easy topic to discuss. With that clearly not the case, analyzing the more difficult blights in our past begins to seem nigh impossible. The trouble is, American history is absolutely infested with deeds both painful to examine and downright evil. Shedding light on this is really hard. Because, clearly, nobody wants to be told that everything they hold dear is bad and wrong. Even when you do make some headway into this realm, like finding common ground in a desire to remove the Confederate emblem from the Mississippi state flag, it's at this point where you'll begin to hear cries of, where does it end? Now I'll tell you outright. In spite of the fact that I do not agree with the desecration or removal of monuments dedicated to the Founding Fathers, I'm not afraid of where it ends, but rather, I'm thrilled that an honest discussion has finally begun. So for those who've uttered the phrase, it's a slippery slope in response to all this, go ahead and strap on some skis, cause uh, it's all downhill from here. As I mentioned that the Founding Fathers are a bit of a flashpoint when it comes to all this monument removal, it's about time to talk about Thomas Jefferson. American God, slave-owning hypocrite. Let's start with some irrefutable facts. Over his lifetime, Thomas Jefferson would own about 600 human beings. At any given time, you could find between 100 and 140 slaves hard at work at his castle on the hill known as Monticello. In 1794, he wrote a letter to a fellow plantation owner saying that, quote, I have now employed a dozen little black boys from 10 to 16 years of age, overlooking all the details of their business myself. Not just an omnipotent and invisible force, Thomas Jefferson was quite literally hands-on with his human property. And, as any plantation owner would, he also employed an overseer to ensure discipline and productivity. The tool of that trade was the whip. Like all slaveholders and many other white members of American society, he regarded blacks as inferior, childlike, untrustworthy, and of course, as property embracing the worst forms of racism to justify slavery. When Jefferson's old friend, the Revolutionary War hero, Thaddeus Kosciuszko died, leaving a small but substantial fortune to Jefferson, his will included this important passage, quote, I hereby authorize my friend, Thomas Jefferson, to employ the whole bequest in purchasing Negroes and granting them liberty in my name. These requests were no surprise to Jefferson, as he was the one who helped Thaddeus write him. As executor, Jefferson was legally bound to use this inheritance to essentially buy the freedom of his or anyone else's slaves. Yet, even though this would have alleviated the massive debt hanging over Monticello, 
not to mention relieving him of what he himself had described as the, quote, moral reproach of slavery, Jefferson refused the gift, choosing not to honor his friend's final wishes. Even when he was given this ultimate opportunity, slave ownership, the vehicle that built Jefferson's wealth and status in the first place, was simply too profitable to abandon. After Jefferson's death, even his most devoted servants were sent to the auction block. One family was callously divided up among eight different buyers, another family among seven, all of which died as slaves. In fact, the only slaves that Jefferson ever freed were the ones born to him by Sally Hemings. Sally was also Thomas Jefferson's slave, a piece of human property with whom he fathered at least six children. Thomas Jefferson was also the author of one of the greatest documents ever written. His immortal words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, are more revolutionary than anything written by Robespierre, Marx, or Lenin. They're a continual challenge to ourselves, as well as the inspiration to the oppressed of all the world. Massachusetts freed its slaves on the strength of the Declaration of Independence, weaving Jefferson's language into their 1870 state constitution. The meaning of, quote, all men was so clear to the southern states that they were disturbed enough to change Jefferson's original wording to, quote, all free men are equal when writing their state constitutions. The authors knew what Jefferson meant, and they could not accept it. Such was the power of Thomas Jefferson's words, yet they were words he himself would never really live up to. Though perhaps no man did more for human liberty with a quill than Thomas Jefferson, few men profited more from human slavery. And I'm going straight for old beloved TJ, because he proves to be the most impossibly hypocritical and enigmatic character in our nation's history. And the fact that he was a walking contradiction was not lost on contemporaries of his time. Quote, How is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty from the drivers of Negroes? Asked moralist Dr. Sam Johnson. Virginia abolitionist Moncure Conway, noting Jefferson's enduring reputation as a would-be emancipator, remarked scornfully, quote, Never did a man achieve more fame for what he did not do. Even among his American contemporaries, Jefferson proved unequal to his own supposed beliefs. In the 1790s, while Jefferson was mortgaging his slaves to build Monticello, George Washington was scraping together financing for an emancipation at Mount Vernon. While the Enlightenment hero Jefferson openly insisted that a multiracial society with free black people was impossible, Washington proved that emancipation was not only possible, but practical, giving life to the revolutionary concepts that Jefferson championed, but refused to enact himself. However, it should be noted that not even Washington realized this freedom for his property within his own lifetime, his will only granting emancipation upon his wife's death. If you want a true deep dive into this fascinating story, I implore you to read the long-form articles 
The Dark Side of Thomas Jefferson, and Founding Fathers and Slaveholders, both from Smithsonian, and you'll find those links within my social media. In fact, I think every American should be required to know this information. Confronting this history should not be a political statement. It is simply the truth. And I'm not trying to defame our nation's heroes. I'm not even saying that Jefferson is not a hero. But failing to paint the full picture of this deeply contradictory figure leads to absurd passages and biographies such as this 1941 version called The Way of an Eagle. Quote, In his beehive of industry at Monticello, no discord or revilings found entrance. There were no signs of discontent on the black shining faces as they worked under direction of their master. The women sang at their tasks, and their children that were old enough to work made nails leisurely, not too overworked for a prank now and then. Lauded by Time magazine as one of the most important books of 1941, and reprinted as Thomas Jefferson, Fighter for Freedom and Human Rights in 1961, this book, along with hundreds like it, imagined a sanitized mythology that shaped attitudes about slavery for generations. Warped history like this acts like a gateway drug to the worst revisionist concepts. But even so, this does not mean that I'm calling for the Jefferson Monument to be bulldozed. As America's ugly history of slavery and discrimination casts a pall over the world we live in today, blanket judgments against offenders of the past are increasingly easy to make. The anger gripping our country is justified. That these former masters be judged as lacking in the scope of their minds and hearts is fair. Indeed, it must be insisted upon. But that does not mean we should judge the whole of them only by this one part. What I do call for is an honest conversation about the conflicting truths of our national heroes, especially ones as monumentally important to our country as the Founding Fathers. To hide from the truth, and to call those who seek it seditious, displays not patriotism, but cowardice. In his final message to America, on June 24, 1826, ten days before he died, Jefferson declined an invitation to be in Washington for the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He wrote, quote, All eyes are opened or opening to the rights of man. The general spread of light of science has already laid open to every view the palpable truth that the mass of mankind is not born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them. I do believe that Jefferson died with the hope that the future would bring to fruition the promises of equality. Though he never lived up to the greatness of his own words, it is this challenge to do so that defines the American spirit. Our birthright is not land or freedom, but a duty to strive for the realization of these aspirations. With his words, Jefferson defined the goal. Washington, through his actions, showed us what was possible. Lincoln's courage turned both into reality. The torch is now ours to carry forward, not only by our actions, but how we take ownership of the truth of our past. 
It's not about hating one's country for its sins, but if we allow these sins to take root in our hearts, or worse, continue to honor and celebrate our ugliest mistakes, we can neither arrive at our ultimate destination nor live up to our most righteous ideals. As exemplified by Jefferson, our nation is born out of conflict and contradiction, greatness and evil. America itself is but an aspirational dream, an ongoing experiment. To understand that, we must be capable of holding multiple truths in our head at the same time. Examining both the good and the bad is not only a step towards that better future, but perhaps the most vital one we can take today. Even so, this movement must not be solely a destructive act. In that awesome statue of Jefferson in his rotunda, you'll see his Declaration of Independence clutched in his hand. This monument is built to celebrate the best of Jefferson and the best of the American concept, and that intention matters. This moment right here is an opportunity to teach, contextualize, and even edit and amend where possible. A monument need not be a judgment on a historical character. That said, truly irredeemable ones, like that of Nathan Bedford Forrest, would best be melted down and recast in the image of, oh, let's say, Harriet Tubman. The movement unfolding before our eyes is not about destroying heritage, but making way for progress, jettisoning the bad, raising up the best, and choosing the examples that show us the way forward. And almost shockingly, we're actually seeing some real change. Texas, for the first time, will be adopting a new curriculum that correctly teaches slavery as the central issue of the Civil War. Mississippi has finally voted to retire its Confederate symbol-bearing state flag. Bipartisan discussions led by the military are currently being had to rename Confederate bases in spite of reticence from the White House. Though these are only baby steps, this is what culture change looks like at first. Continuing to seek knowledge and bring the truth to the surface is our duty. Those who refuse to do so willfully impede both progress and justice, dooming us to the ugly stagnation of nations like China. Now, I know that's an extreme example to make, but living in a free, democratic society allows us to type in Tiananmen Square Massacre into the old Google machine and get real answers. That's a simple yet beautiful thing that not all of the world enjoys. If we don't have the courage to analyze our history with the illuminating light of hindsight, then we squander one of the greatest pieces of our freedom, the freedom to seek the truth. In Germany, we see a nation made to dissect, confront, and live with a long list of atrocities on a daily basis. This is no easy task. And notice I say they were made to. Yes, this was forced upon them, especially at first. But now we see how a correct and lasting memory breeds progress. It's the reason that there isn't a Nazi shrine in Berlin. We can look to Japan for the alternate course. Though we may physically choke when we look at Japan's insular and twisted view of history, the United States suffers from the same ailments. With a warped understanding of history, the need for atonement becomes an alien concept. It is much harder to fix a problem if you don't know you have one.
This brings me back to that day at the Yasukuni Shrine, standing beneath the memorial to the Kamikaze. And I'm still not saying that this tiny little statue should be destroyed. As far as locations go, standing out front of a museum in what is essentially a grand cemetery is as good a place you'll get. Perhaps next to it might be a good spot for one of those comfort woman statues. If anything, it's the distorted contents of the Yushukan Museum that needs a complete overhaul. What is paramount to this conversation is realizing that that little kamikaze statue holds incredible power. Who could argue that what the kamikaze did was not brave? Although doomed, insane, and tragic, throwing their lives away for a vicious imperialist cause, but still brave. Concentrating on the brave is what gave this suicidal concept such incredible power in 1945. Make no mistake, that power is real. It is also not extinguished. It lives on in that statue and through the memory of their deeds that are passed on to future generations. That memory is a seed. If not nurtured correctly and allowed to grow wild, or worse, poisoned, weaponized, and exploited, one could soon find the whole garden growing dangerously out of control. Look no further than the USA to see how hard it is to uproot the strangling overgrowth of a poisoned memory.